in section three of chapter, what's the chapter? Chapter 13. McPhee, who had just been refuting both Ransom and Alcazan's head by a two-edged argument which seemed unanswerable in the dream, but which he never afterwards remembered, found himself violently waked by someone shaking his shoulder. He suddenly perceived that he was cold and his left foot was numb. Then he saw Deniston's face looking into his own. The scullery seemed full of people. Deniston and Dimble and Jane. They appeared extremely bedraggled, torn and muddy and wet. Are you all right? Deniston was saying. I've been trying to wake you for several minutes. All right, said McPhee, swallowing once or twice and licking his lips. I am all right. Then he sat upright. There has been a, a man here, he said. What sort of a man? asked Dimble. Well, said McPhee, as to that, it's not just so easy. I fell asleep talking to him, to tell the truth. I can't just bring to mind what we were saying. The others exchanged glances. Though McPhee was fond of a little hot toddy on winter nights, he was a sober man. They had never seen him like this before. Next moment, he jumped to his feet. Lord, save us, he exclaimed. He had the director here. Quick, we must search the house and the garden. It was some kind of impostor or spy. I know now what's wrong with me. I've been hypnotized. There was a horse, too. I mind the horse. This last detail had an immediate effect on his hearers. Deniston flung open the kitchen door, and the whole party surged in after him. For a second they saw indistinct forms in the deep red light of a large fire, which had not been attended to for some hours. Then, as Deniston found the switch and turned on the light, all drew a deep breath. The four women sat fast asleep. The jackdaw slept, perched on the back of an empty chair. Mr. Bultitude, stretched out on his side across the hearth, slept also. His tiny, childlike snore, so disproportionate to his bulk, was audible in the momentary silence. Mrs. Dimble, bunched in what seemed an uncomfortable position, was sleeping, with her head on the table, a half-darned sock still clasped on her knees. Dimble looked at her with that incurable pity which men feel for any sleeper, but especially for a wife. Camilla, who had been under the rocking chair, was curled up in an attitude which was full of grace, like that of an animal accustomed to sleep anywhere. Mrs. Mag slept with her kind, commonplace mouth wide open, and Grace Ironwood, bolt upright as if she were awake, but with her head sagging a little to one side, seemed to submit with austere patience to the humiliation of unconsciousness. They're all right, said McPhee from behind. It's just the same as he did to me. We've no time to wake them. Get on. They passed from the kitchen into the flagged passage. To all of them except McPhee, the silence of the house seemed intense after their buffeting in the wind and rain. The lights, as they switched them on success successively, revealed empty rooms and empty passages, which wore the abandoned look of indoor midnight, fires dead in the grates, an evening paper on a sofa, the clock that had stopped. But no one had really expected to find much else on the ground floor. Now for upstairs, said Dimble. The lights are on upstairs, said Jane, as they all came to the foot of the staircase. We've turned them on ourselves from the passage, said Dimble. I don't think we did, said Deniston. Excuse me, said Dimble to McPhee. I think perhaps I'd better go first. Up to the first landing they were in darkness. On the second and the last the light from the first floor fell. At each landing the stair made a right-angled turn so that till you reached the second you could not see the lobby on the floor above. Jane and Deniston, who were last, saw McPhee and Dimble stop dead on the second landing. Their faces in profile lit up, 
and the backs of their heads in darkness. The Ulsterman's mouth was shut like a trap, his expression hostile and afraid. Dimble was open-mouthed. Then, forcing her tired limbs to run, Jane got up beside them and saw what they saw. Looking down on them, looking down on them from the balustrade were two men, one clothed in sweepy garments of red and the other in blue. It was the director who wore blue, and for one instant a thought that was pure nightmare crossed Jane's mind. The two robed figures looked to be two of the same sort, and what, after all, did she know of this director, who had conjured her into his house, and made her dream dreams, and taught her the fear of hell that very night? And there they were, the pair of them, talking their secrets and doing whatever such people would do, when they had emptied the house or laid its inhabitants to sleep. The man who had been dug up out of the earth, and the man who had been in outer space, and one who told them that the other was an enemy, and now, the moment they met, here were the two of them, run together like two drops of quicksilver. All this time she had hardly looked at the stranger. The director seemed to have laid aside his crutch, and Jane had hardly seen him standing so straight and still before. The light so fell on his beard that it became a kind of halo, and on top of his head also she caught the glint of gold. Suddenly, while she thought of these things, she found that her eyes were looking straight into the eyes of the stranger. Next moment she had noticed his size. The man was monstrous, and the two men were allies, and the stranger was speaking and pointing at her as he spoke. She did not understand the words, but Dimble did, and heard Merlin saying in what seemed to him a rather strange kind of Latin, "'Sir, you have in your house the falsest lady of any at this time alive. Dimble heard the director answer him in the same language. Sir, you are mistaken. She is doubtless like all of us a sinner, but the woman is chaste. Sir, said Merlin, know well what that she has done in Logris, a thing of which no less sorrow shall come than came at the stroke that Belinus struck. For, sir, it was the purpose of God that she and her lord should between them have begotten a child by whom the enemies should have been put out of Logris for a thousand years. She is but lately married, said Ransom. The child may yet be born. Sir, said Merlin, be assured that the child will never be born, for the hour of its begetting has passed. Of their own will they are barren. I did not know till now that the usages of Solva were so common among you. For a hundred generations in two lines the begetting of this child was prepared, and unless God should rip up the work of time, such seed and such an hour in such a land shall never be again. Enough said, answered Ransom. The woman perceived that we are speaking of her. It would be a great charity, said Merlin, if you gave order that her head should be cut from her shoulders, for it is a weariness to look at her. Jane, though she had a smattering of Latin, did not understand their conversation. The accent was unfamiliar, and the old druid used a vocabulary that was far beyond her reading, the Latin of a man to whom Apuleius and Martianus Capella were the primary classics, and whose elegances resembled those of the Hesperica Famina. But Dimble had followed it. He thrust Jane behind him and called out, Ransom, what in heaven's name is the meaning of this? Merlin spoke again in Latin, and Ransom was just turning to answer him when Dimble interrupted. Answer us, he said. What has happened? Why are you dressed up like that? What are you doing with that bloodthirsty old man? McPhee, who had followed the Latin even less than Jane, 
but who had been staring at Merlin like an angry terrier stares at a Newfoundland dog, which has invaded his own garden, broke into the conversation. Dr. Ransom, he said, I don't know who the big man is, and I'm no Latinist, but I know well that you've kept me under your eyes all this night against my own expressed will, and allowed me to be drugged and hypnotized. It gives me little pleasure, I assure you, to see you dressed up like something out of a pantomime and standing there hand in glove with that yogi or shaman or priest or whatever he is. And I, you can tell him he need not look at me that way that he's doing. I'm not afraid of him. And as for my own life and limb, if you, Dr. Ransom, have changed sides after all that's come and gone, I don't know that I have much more use for either. But though I may be killed, I'm not going to be made a fool of. We are waiting for an explanation. The director looked down on them in silence for a few seconds. Has it really come to this, he said. Does not one of you trust me? I do, sir, said Jane suddenly. These appeals to the passions and emotions, said McPhee, are nothing to the purpose. I could cry as well as anyone at this moment if I gave my mind to it. Well, said the director after a pause, there is some excuse for you all to have, for, for you all, for we have all been mistaken. So has the enemy. This man is Merlinus Ambrosius. They thought that if he came back, he'd be on their side. I find he is on ours. You, Dimble, ought to realize that this was always a possibility. That is true, said Dimble. I suppose it was. Well, the look of the thing, you and he standing there together, like that, and his appalling bloodthirstiness. I've been startled by it myself, said Ransom, but after all, we had no right to expect that his penal code would be that of the 19th century. I find it difficult, too, to make him understand that I'm not an absolute monarch. Is, is he a Christian? asked Dimble. Yes, said Ransom. As for my clothes, I have for once put on the dress of my office to do him honor, and because I was ashamed. He mistook McPhee and me for scullions or stable boys. In his days, you see, men did not, except for necessity, go about in shapeless sacks of cloth, and drab was not a favorite color. At this point, Merlin spoke again. Dimble and the director, who alone could follow his speech, heard him say, Who are these people? If they are your slaves, why do they... Why do they do you no reverence? If they are enemies, why do we not destroy them? They are my friends, began Ransom in Latin, but McPhee interrupted. Do I understand, Dr. Ransom, he said, that you are asking us to accept this person as a member of our organization? I am afraid, said the director, I cannot put it that way. He is a member of the organization, and I must command you all to <coughs> accept him. And secondly, continued McPhee, I must ask what inquiries have been made into his credentials. I am fully satisfied, answered the director. I am as sure of his good faith as of yours. But the grounds of your confidence, persisted McPhee, are we not to hear them? It would be hard, said the director, to explain to you my reasons for trusting Merlinus Ambrosius, but no harder than to explain to him why, despite many appearances which might be misunderstood, I trust you. There was just the ghost of a smile about his mouth as he said this, then Merlin spoke to him again in Latin, and he replied, after that Merlin addressed Dimble. The Pendragon tells me, he said in his unmoved voice, that you accuse me for a fierce and cruel man. It is a charge I have never heard before. A third part of my substance I gave to widows and poor men. I never sought the death of any but felons and heathen Saxons. As for the woman, she may live for me. I am not master of, in this house. It would be such a great matter if her head were struck off. 
Do not queens and ladies who would disdain her as their tirewoman go to the fire for less? Even that gallows bird, Cruciarius, beside you. I mean you, fellow, though you speak nothing but your own barbarous tongue, you with the face like sour milk and the voice like a saw in a hard log and the legs like a crane's, even that cut purse, Sector Zonarius. Though I would have him into the gatehouse, yet the rope would be used on his back, not his throat. McPhee, who realized, though without understanding the words, that he was the subject of some unfavorable comment, stood listening with that expression of entirely suspended judgment which is commoner in Northern Ireland and the <coughs> Scotch lowlands than in England. Mr. Director, he said when Merlin had finished, I would be very greatly obliged if... Come, said the Director suddenly. We have none of us slept tonight. Arthur, will you come and light a fire for our guest in the big room at the north end of this passage? And would someone wake the women, ask them to bring up refreshments, a bottle of burgundy and whatever you have cold, and then all to bed. We need not stir early in the morning. All is going to be very well. Four. We are going to have difficulties with that new colleague of ours, said Dimble. He was alone with his wife in their room at St. Anne's late on the following day. Yes, he repeated after a pause, what you'd call a strong colleague. You look very tired, Cecil, said Mrs. Dimble. Well, it's been a rather grueling conference, said he. He's, he's a tiring man. Oh, I know, we've all been fools. I mean, we've been all imagining that because he came back in the 20th century, he'd be a 20th century man. Time is more important than we thought, that's all. I felt that at lunch, you know, said his wife. It was so silly not to have realized that he wouldn't know about forks. And what surprised me even more, after the first shock, was, well, how elegant he was without them. I mean, you could see it wasn't a cause, case of having no manners, but of having different ones. <coughs> oh, the old boy is a gentleman in his own way. Anyone can see that. But, well, I don't know. I suppose it's all right. <coughs> what happened at the meeting? Well, you see, everything had to be explained on both sides. We had the dickens of a job to make him understand that Ransom isn't the king of this country or trying to become king. And then we had to break it to him that we weren't the British at all, but the English, what he'd call Saxons. It took him some time to get over that. I see. And when McPhee had to choose that moment for embarking on an interminable explanation of the relations between Scotland and Ireland and England, all of which, of course, had to be translated. It was all nonsense, too. Like a good many people, McPhee imagines he's a Celt when, apart from his name, there's nothing Celtic about him any more than about Mr. Bultitude. By the way, Merlinus Ambrosius made a prophecy about Mr. Bultitude. Oh, what was that? He said that before, before Christmas, this bear would do the best deed that any bear had done in Britain, except some other bear that none of us had ever heard of. <laughs> he keeps on saying things like that. They just pop out when we're talking about something else. And in a rather different voice, as if he couldn't help it. He doesn't seem to know any more than the bit he tells you at the moment, if you see what I mean. As if something like a camera shutter opened at the back of his mind and closed again immediately, and just one little item came through. It has rather a disagreeable effect. He and McPhee didn't quarrel again, I hope? <laughs> Not exactly. I'm afraid Merlinus Ambrosius wasn't taking McPhee very seriously. From the fact that McPhee is always being obstructive and rather rude and never gets sat on, I think Merlinus has concluded that he is the director's fool. He seems to have got over his dislike for him, but I don't think McPhee is going to like Marlinus. 
Did you get down to actual business? Said, asked Mrs. Dimble. Well, in a way, said Dimble, driggling his forehead. We were all at cross purposes, you see. The business about Ivy's husband being in prison came up, and Merlinus wanted to know why we hadn't rescued him. He seemed to imagine us just riding off and taking the county jail by storm. That's the sort of thing one was up against all the time. Cecil, said Mrs. Dimble suddenly, is he going to be any use? He is going to be able to do things, if that's what you mean. In that sense, there's more danger of his being too much use than too little. What sort of things, asked his wife. The universe is so very complicated, said Dr. Dimble. So you have said rather often before, dear, replied Mrs. Dimble. Have I, he said with a smile, how often, I wonder, as often as you've told the story of the pony and trap at Dawlish? Cecil, I haven't told it for years. My dear, I heard you telling it to Camilla the night before last. Oh, Camilla, well, that's quite different. She'd never heard it before. <laughs> I don't know that we could be certain even about that, the universe being so complicated at all. For a few minutes, there was silence between them. But about Merlin, asked Mrs. Dimble presently. Have you ever noticed, said Dimble, that the universe, and every little bit of the universe, is always hardening and narrowing and coming to a point? His wife waited as those who wait as those wait who know by long experience the mental processes of the person who is talking to them. I mean this, said Dimble, in the answer to the question she had not asked. If you dip into any college or school or parish or family, anything like that, at any given point in its history, you'll always find that there was a time before that point when there was more elbow room and contrasts weren't quite so sharp, and that there's going to be a time after that point when there is even less room for indecision and choices are even more momentous. Good is always getting better, and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even apparent neutrality are always diminishing. The whole thing is sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point, getting sharper and harder. Like in the poem about heaven and hell eating into merry middle earth from opposite sides. How does it go? Something about, quote, eat every day till all is something to weigh. Can't be eaten, that wouldn't scan. My memory has failed dreadfully these last few years. Do you know the bit, Marjorie? What you were saying reminded me a bit of, more of the bit of the Bible about the winnowing fan separating the wheat and the chaff, or like Browning's line, life's business being just the terrible choice. Exactly. Perhaps the whole pro time process means just that and nothing else. But it's not only in questions of moral choice. Everything is getting more itself and more different from everything else all the time. Evolution means species getting less and less like one another. Minds get more and more spiritual matter, more and more material. Even in literature, poetry and prose draw further and further apart. Mrs. Dimble, with the ease born of long practice, averted the danger, ever present in her house, of a merely literary turn being given to the conversation. Yes, she said, spirit and matter, certainly. That explains why people like the Studdicks find it so difficult to be happily married. The Studdicks, said Dimble, looking at her rather vaguely, the domestic problems of that young couple had occupied his mind a good deal less than they had occupied his wife's. Oh, I see. Yes, I dare say that has something to do with it. But about Merlin, what it comes to, as far as I could make out, is this. There were still possibilities for a man of that age which, weren't, which there aren't for a man of ours. The earth itself was more like an animal in those days. The mental processes were much more like physical actions. And there were, well, neutrals knocking about. Neutrals. I don't mean, of course, that anything can be really neutral. 
a real neutral, a conscious being as either obeying God or disobeying him, but there might be things neutral in relation to us. You mean Eldils, angels? Well, the word angel rather begs the question. Even the Oruesu aren't exactly angels in the same sense as our guardian angels are. Technically, they're intelligences. The point is that while it may be true at the end of the world to describe every Eldil either as an angel or a devil, and may even be true now, it was much less true in Merlin's time. There used to be things on this earth pursuing their own business, so to speak. They weren't ministering spirits sent to help fallen humanity, but neither were they enemies preying upon us. Even in St. Paul, one gets a glimpse of a population that won't exactly fit into our two columns of angels and devils. And if you go back further, all the gods, elves, dwarves, water people, fate, longevi, you and I know too much to think that they were just illusions. You think there are things like that? I think there were. I think there was room for them then, but the universe has come more to a point. Not all rational things, perhaps. Some would be mere wills inherent in matter, hardly conscious, more like animals. Others, and I don't really know. At any rate, that is the sort of situation in which one got a man like Merlin. It all sounds rather horrible to me. It was rather horrible. I mean, even in Merlin's time, he came to the extreme at tail end of it. Though you could still use that sort of life in the universe innocently, you couldn't do it safely. Safely. The things weren't bad in themselves, but they were already bad for us. They sort of withered the man who dealt with them. Not on purpose. They couldn't help doing it. Merlinus is withered. He's quite pious and humble and all that, but something has been taken out of him. That quietness of his is just a little deadly, like the quiet of a gutted building. It's the result of having laid his mind open to something that broadens the environment just a bit too much. Like polygamy. It wasn't wrong for Abraham, but one can't help feeling that even he lost something by it. Cecil, said Mrs. Dimble, do you feel quite comfortable about the directors using a man like this? I mean, doesn't it look a bit like fighting Belbury with its own weapons? No, I had thought of that. Merlin is the reverse of Belbury. He's at the opposite extreme. He's the last vestige of an old order in which matter and spirit were, from our modern point of view, confused. For him, every operation on nature is kind of a personal contact, like coaxing a child or stroking one's horse. After him came the modern man to whom nature is something dead, a machine to be worked, and taken to bits if it won't work the way he pleases. Finally, come with the Belbury people, who take over that, that view from the modern man unaltered and simply want to increase their power by tacking onto it the aid of spirits, extra-natural, anti-natural spirits. Of course, they hoped to have it both ways. They thought the old magia of Merlin, which worked in with the spiritual qualities of nature, loving and reverencing them and knowing them from within, could be combined with the new goetia, the brutal surgery from without. No, in a sense, Merlin represents what we've got to get back to in some different way. Do you know that he's forbidden by the rules of his order to use any edge tool on any growing thing? Good gracious, said Mrs. Dimble. There's six o'clock. I promised Ivy to be in the kitchen at quarter two. There's no need for you to move, Cecil. Do you know, said Dimble, I think you're a wonderful woman. Why? How many women who have lost their own house for thirty years would be able to fit into this menagerie as you do? That's nothing, said Mrs. Dimble. Ivy had her own house, too, you know. And it's much worse for her. After all, I haven't got my husband in jail. You jolly soon will have, said Dimble, if half the plans of Merlinus Ambrosius are put into action. <laughs> Five. 
Merlin and the director were, meanwhile, talking in the blue room. The director had put aside his robe and circlet and lay on the sofa. The druid sat in a chair facing him, his legs uncrossed, his pale, large hands motionless on his knees, looking to modernize like an old conventional carving of a king. <coughs> he was still robed, and beneath the robe, as Ransom knew, had surprisingly little clothing for the warmth of the house was to him excessive, and he found trousers uncomfortable. His loud demands for oil after his bath had involved some hurried shopping in the village, which had finally produced by Deniston's exertions a tin of brilliantine. Merlinus had used it freely so that his hair and beard glistened and the sweet, sticky smell filled the room. That was why Mr. Bultitude had pawed so, pawed so insistently at the door that he was finally admitted and now sat as near the magician as he could possibly get, his nostrils twitching. He had never smelled such an interesting man before. Sir, said Merlin, in answer to the question which the director had just asked him, I give you great thanks. I cannot indeed understand the way you live, and your house is strange to me. You give me a bath such as the emperor himself might envy, but no one attends me to it. A bed softer than sleep itself, but when I rise from it, I find I must put on my own clothes with my own hands as if I were a peasant. I lie in a room with windows of pure crystal so that you can see the sky as clearly when they are shut as when they are open, and there is not wind enough within the room to blow out an unguarded taper. But I lie in it alone with no more honor than a prisoner in a dungeon. Your people eat dry and tasteless flesh, but it is off plates as smooth as ivory and as round as the sun. In all the house there are warmth and softness and silence that might put a man to mind of paradise at terrestrial, but no hangings, no beautified pavements, no musicians, no perfumes, no high seats, no, not a gleam of gold, not a hawk, not a hound. You seem to me to live neither like a rich man nor a poor one, neither like a lord nor a hermit. Sir, I tell you these things because you have asked me. They are of no importance. Now that none hears us save the last of the seven bears, of, the, of Logris, it is time that we should open councils to each other. He glanced at the director's face as he spoke, and then, as if startled by what he saw there, leaned sharply forward. Does your wound pain you? he asked. Ransom shook his head. No, he said. It is not the wound. We have terrible things to talk of. The big man stirred uneasily. Sir, said Merlinus in a deeper and softer voice, I could take all the anguish from your heel as though I were wiping it out with a sponge. Give me but seven days to go in and out and up and down and to and fro to renew old acquaintance. These fields and I, this wood and I, have much to say to one another. As he said this, he was leaning forward so that his face and the bears were almost side by side, and it almost looked as if those two might have been engaged in some kind of furry and grunted conversation. The druid's face had a strangely animal appearance, not sensual nor fierce, but full of the patient, unarguing sagacity of a beast. Ransom's, meanwhile, was full of torment. You might find the country much changed, he said, forcing a smile. No, said Merlin, I do not reckon to find it much changed. The distance between the two men was increasing every moment. Merlin was like something that ought not to be indoors. Bathed and anointed though he was, a sense of mold, gravel, wet leaves, weedy water hung about him. Not changed, he repeated in an almost inaudible voice. And in that deepening inner silence of which his face bore witness, one might have believed that he listened continually to a murmur of evasive sounds 
rustling of mice and stoats, thumping progression of frogs, the small shock of falling hazelnuts, creaking of branches, runnels trickling, and the very growing of grass. The bear had closed its eyes. The whole room was growing heavy with a sort of floating, floating anesthesia. Through me, said Merlin, you can suck up from the earth oblivion of all pains. Silence, said the director sharply. He had been sinking down into the cushions of his sofa with his head drooping a little towards his chest. Now he suddenly sat bolt upright. The magician started and straightened himself likewise. The air of the room was cleared. Even the bear opened his eyes again. No, said the director. God's glory, do you think you were dug out of the earth to give me a plaster for my heel? We have drugs that could cheat the pain as well as your earth magic or better. If it were not my business to bear it to the end, I will hear no more of that, do you understand? I hear and obey, said the magician, but I meant no harm. If not to heal your own wound, yet for the healing of Logris, you will need my commerce with field and water. It must be that I should go in and out, and to and fro, renewing old acquaintance. It will not be changed, you know, not what you would call changed. Again that sweet heaviness, like the smell of hawthorn, seemed to be flowing back over the blue room. No, said the director in a still louder voice, that cannot be done any longer. The soul has gone out of the wood and water. Oh, I dare say you could awake them a little, but it would not be enough. A storm or even a river flood would be of little avail against our present enemy. Your weapon would break in your hands, for the hideous strength confronts us as, it, as in the days when Nimrod built a tower to reach heaven. Hidden it may be, said Merlinus, but not changed. Leave me to my work, Lord, I will wake it. I will set a sword in every blade of grass to wound them, and the very clods of earth shall be venom to their feet. I will... No, said the director, I forbid you to speak of it. If it were possible, it would be unlawful. Whatever of spirit may still linger in the earth has withdrawn fifteen hundred years further away from us since your time. You shall not speak a word to it. You shall not lift your little finger to call it up. I command you. It is in this age utterly unlawful. Hitherto he had been speaking sternly and coldly. Now he leaned forward and said in a different voice, It never was very lawful, even in your day. Remember when we first knew that you would be awaked? We thought you'd be on the side of the enemy. And because our Lord does all things for each one of the purposes of your reawakening was that your own soul should be saved. Merlin sank back into his chair like a man unstrung. The bear licked his hand where it hung, pale and relaxed, over the arm of the chair. Sir, said Merlin presently, if I am not to work for you in that fashion, then you have taken into your house a silly bulk of flesh. For I am no longer much of a man of war. If it comes to point and edge, I avail little. Not that way either, said Ransom, hesitating like a man who is reluctant to come to the point. No power that is merely earthly, he continued at last, will serve against the hideous strength. Then let us all to prayers, said Merlinus. But there also, I was not reckoned of much account. They called me a devil's son, some of them. It was a lie. But I do not know why I should have, I have been brought back. Certainly let us stick to our prayers, said Ransom, now and always. But that is not what I meant. There are celestial powers, created powers, not in this earth, but in the heavens. Merlinus looked at him in silence. You know well what I am speaking of, said Ransom. Did I not tell you when we first met the, that the Oyuresu are my masters? Of course, said Merlin, but that was how I knew you were of the college. Is it not our password all over the earth? A password? exclaimed Ransom with a look of surprise. I did not know that. But, but, said Merlin, 
If you knew not the password, how did you come to say it? I said it because it was true. The magician licked his lips, with which, which had become very pale. True as the plainest things are true, repeated Ransom. True as it is true that you sit here with my bear beside you. Merlin spread out his hands. You are my father and mother, he said. His eyes, steadily fixed on Ransom, were large as those of an awestruck child, but for the rest he looked a smaller man than Ransom had taken him to be. Suffer me to speak, he said at last, or slay me if you will, for I am in the hollow of your hand. I had heard of it in my own days that some had spoken with the gods. Blaze, my master, knew a few words of that speech, yet these were, after all, powers of earth. For I need not teach you, you know more than I, that it is not the very Oyuresu, the true powers of heaven, whom the greatest of our craft meet, but only their earthly wraiths, their shadows, only the earth Venus, the earth Mercurius, not Paralandra herself, not Vera Triblia herself, himself. It is only... I am not speaking of the wraiths, said Ransom. I have stood before Mars himself in the sphere of Mars, and before Venus herself in the sphere of Venus. It is their strength, and the strength of some greater than they, which will destroy our enemies. But, Lord, said Merlin, how can this be? Is it not against the seventh law? What law is that? asked Ransom. Has not our fair Lord made it a law for himself, that he will not send down the powers to mend or mar in this earth until the end of all things? Or is this the end that is even now coming to pass? It may be the beginning of the end, said Ransom, but I know nothing of that. Maladil may have made it a law not to send down the powers, but if men by ingenry and natural philosophy learn to fly into the heavens and come in the flesh among the heavenly powers and trouble them, he has not forbidden the powers to react. For all this is within the natural order. A wicked man did learn so to do. He came flying by a subtle engine to where Mars dwells in heaven and to where Venus dwells, and took me with him as captive. And there I spoke with the true Oruesu face to face. You understand me? Merlin inclined his head. And so the wicked man had brought about, even as Judas brought about, the thing he least intended. For now there was one man in the world, even myself, who was known to the Oruesu and spoke their tongue, neither by God's miracle nor by magic from Numenor, but naturally, as when two men meet in a road. Our enemies had taken away from themselves the protection of the seventh law. They had broken by natural philosophy the barrier which God of his own power would not break. Even so, they sought you as a friend and raised up for themselves a scourge. And that is why powers of heaven have come down to this house, and in this chamber where we are now discoursing, Malacandra and Paralandra have spoken to me. Merlin's face became a little paler. The bear nosed at his hand unnoticed. I have become a bridge, said Ransom. Sir, said Merlin, what will come of this? If they put forth their power, they will unmake all Middle-earth. Their naked power, yes, said Ransom. That is why they will work only through a man. The magician drew one large hand across his forehead. Through a man whose mind is open to be so invaded, said Ransom, one who by his own will once opened it. I take our fair lord to witness that if it were my task, I would not refuse it. But he will not suffer a mind that still has its virginity to be so violated. And through a black magician's mind, their purity neither can nor will operate. One who has dabbled in the days when dabbling had not begun to be evil, or was only just beginning, and also a Christian man and a penitent, a tool, 
I must speak plainly, good enough to be so used, and not too good. In all these western parts of the world there was only one man who had lived in those days and could still be recalled. You. He stopped, shocked at what was happening. The huge man had risen from his chair and stood towering over him. From his horribly open mouth there came a yell that seemed to ransom utterly bestial, though it was in fact only the yell of primitive Celtic lamentation. It was horrifying to see that withered and bearded face all blubbered with undisguised tears like a child's. All the Roman surface of Inmerlinus had been scraped off. He had become a shameless, archaic monstrosity, babbling out entreaties in a mixture of what sounded like Welsh and what sounded like Spanish. Silence, shouted Ransom. Sit down. You put us both to shame. As suddenly as it had begun, the frenzy ended. Merlin resumed his chair. To a modern, it seemed strange that having recovered his self-control, he did not show the slightest embarrassment at his temporary loss of it. The whole character of the two-sided society in which this man must have lived became clearer to Ransom than pages of history could have made it. Do not think, said Ransom, that for me either it is child's play to meet those who will come down for you empowering. Sir, faltered Merlin, you have been in heaven. I am but a man. I am not the son of one of the Irish men. That was a lying story. How can I? You are not as I. You have looked upon their faces before. Not on all of them, said Ransom. Greater spirits than Malacandra and Paralandra will descend this time. We are in God's hands. It may unmake us both. There is no promise that either you or I will save our lives or our reason. I do not know how we can dare to look upon their faces, but I know we cannot dare to look upon God's if we refuse this enterprise. Suddenly the magician smote his hand upon his knee. Macule, he cried, are we not going too fast? If you are the Pendragon, I'm a, I am the High Council of Logris, and I will counsel you. If the powers must tear me in pieces to break our enemies, God's will be done. But is it yet come to that, this Saxon king of yours who sits at Windsor now, is there no help in him? He has no power in this matter. Then is he not weak enough to be overthrown? I have no wish to overthrow him. He is the king. He was crowned and anointed by the archbishop. In the order of Logris I may be Pendragon, but in the order of Britain... I am the king's man. Is it then his great men, the counts and legates and bishops, who do the evil, and he does not know of it? It is, though they're not exactly the sort of great men you have in mind. And are we not big enough to meet them in plain battle? We are four men, some women, and a bear. <laughs> I saw the time when Logris was only myself, and one man, and two boys, and one of those was a churl. Yet we conquered. It could not be done now. They have an engine called the press, whereby the people are deceived. We would die without even being heard of. But what are the true clerks? Are there no help in them? It cannot be that all your priests and bishops are corrupted. The faith itself is torn in pieces since your day, and speaks with a divided voice. Even if it were made whole, the Christians were but a tenth part of the people. There is no help there. Then let us seek help from overseas. Is there no Christian prince in Neustria or Ireland or Benwick? which would come in and cleanse Britain as if he, if he were called? There is no Christian prince left. These other countries are even as Britain, or else sunk deeper still in the disease. Then we must go higher. We must go to him whose office is to put down tyrants and give life to dying kingdoms. We must call on the emperor. There is no emperor. No emperor, began Merlin, and then his voice died away. He sat still for some minutes wrestling with a world which he had never envisaged. Presently he said, 
a thought comes into my mind, and I do not know whether it is good or evil. But because I am the High Council of Logris, I will not hide it from you. This is a cold age in which I have waked. If all this west part of the world is apostate, might it not be lawful, in our great need, to look further beyond Christendom? Should we not find some even among the heathen who are not wholly corrupt? There were tales in my day of such some men, men who knew not the articles or our most holy faith, but who worshipped God as they could and acknowledged the law of nature. Sir, I believe it would be lawful to seek help even there, beyond Byzantium. It was rumored also that there was knowledge in those lands, an eastern circle and wisdom that came west from Numenor. I know not where, Babylon, Arabia, or Cathay. You said your ships had sailed all round the earth, above and beneath. Ransom shook his head. You do not understand, he said. The poison was brewed in these west lands, but it has spat itself everywhere by now. However far you went, you would find the machines, the crowded cities, the empty thrones, the false writings, the barren beds, men maddened with false promises and soured with true miseries, worshipping the iron works of their own hands, cut off from earth their mother and from the Father in heaven. You might go east so far that east became west, and you returned to Britain across the great ocean. <coughs> but even so, you would not have come out anywhere into the light. <coughs> the shadow of the one dark wing is over all Tellus. Is it then the end? asked Merlin. And this, said Ransom, ignoring the question, is why we have no way left at all, save the one I told you. The hideous strength holds all this earth in its fist to squeeze as it wishes. But for their one mistake, there would be no hope left. If of their own evil will they had not broken the frontier and let in the celestial powers, this would be their moment of victory. Their own strength has betrayed them. They have gone to the gods who would not have come to them and pulled down deep heaven on their heads. Therefore they will die. For though you search every cranny to escape, now that you see all crannies closed, you will not dis disobey me. And then, very slowly, there crept back into Merlin's white face, first closing his dismayed mouth and finally gleaming in his eyes that almost animal expression, earthy and healthy and with a glint of half-humorous cunning. Well, he said, if the earths are stopped, the fox faces the hounds. But had I known who you were at our first meeting, I think I would have put you asleep on you as I did on your fool. I'm a very light sleeper since I have traveled in the heavens, said Ransom. Chapter 14. Real Life is Meeting Since the day and night of the outer world made no difference in Mark's cell, he did not know whether it was minutes or hours later that he found himself once more awake, once more confronting Frost, and still fasting. The professor came to ask if he had thought over their recent conversation. Mark, who judged that some decent show of reluctances would make his final surrender more convincing, re replied that the only one thing was still troubling him. He did not quite understand what in particular, he in particular, or humanity in general, stood to gain by cooperating with the macrobes. He saw clearly that the motives on which, mo which most men act, and which they dignify by the names of patriotism or duty to humanity, were mere products of the animal organism, varying according to the behavior pattern of different communities. But he did not yet say what was to be substituted for these irrational motives. On what ground, henceforward, were actions to be justified or condemned? If one insists on putting the question in those terms, said Frost, I think Waddington has given the best answer. Existence is its own justification.
The tendency to, to developmental change, which we call evolution, is justified by the fact that it is a general characteristic of biological entities. The present establishment of contact between the highest biological entities and the macrobes is justified by the fact that it is occurring, and it ought to be increased because an increase is taking place. You think then, said Mark, that there, there would be no sense in asking whether the general tendency of the universe might be in the direction we should call bad? There could be no sense at all, said Frost. The judgment you are trying to make turns out on inspection to be simply an expression of emotion. Huxley himself could only express it by using a mode of terms such as gladiatorial or ruthless. I am referring to the famous Romaine's lecture. When the so-called struggle for existence is seen simply as an actuarial theorem, we have in Waddington's words, quote, a concept as unemotional as a definite integral, end quote. And the emotion disappears. With it disappears that preposterous idea of an external standard of value which the emotion produced. And the actual tendency of events, said Mark, would still be self-justified and in that sense good when it was working for the extinction of all organic life, as it presently will? Of course, replied Frost, if you insist on formulating the problem in those terms. In reality, the question is meaningless. It presupposes a means and end pattern of thought which descends from Aristotle, who in his turn was merely hypostasizing elements in the experience of an Iron Age agricultural community. Motives are not the causes of action, but its byproducts. You are merely wasting your time by considering them. When you've attained real objectivity, you will recognize not some motives, but all motives as merely animal subjective epiphenomena. Then you will have no motives, and you will find that you do not need them. Their place will be supplied by something else, which you will presently understand better than you do now. So far from being impoverished, your action will become much more efficient. I see, said Mark. The philosophy which Frost was expounding was by no means unfamiliar to him. He recognized it at once as the logical conclusion of thoughts which he had always hitherto accepted, and which at this moment he found himself irrevocably rejecting. The knowledge that his own assumptions led to Frost's position, combined with what he saw in Frost's face and what he experienced in this very cell, affected a complete conversion. All philosophers and evangelists in the world might not have done the job so neatly. And that, continued Frost, is why a systematic training in objectivity must be given to you. Its purpose is to eliminate from your mind, one by one, the things you have hitherto regarded as grounds for action. It is like killing a nerve. That whole system of instinctive preferences, whatever ethical, aesthetic, or logical disguise they wear, is to be simply destroyed. I get the idea, said Mark though with an inward reservation that his present instinctive desire to batter the professor's face into a jelly would make a good, take a good deal of destroying. After that, Frost took Mark from the cell and gave him a meal in some neighboring room. It also was lit by artificial light and had no window. The professor stood perfectly still and watched him while he ate. Mark did not know what the food was and did not much like it, but he was far too hungry by now to refuse it if refusal had been possible. When the meal was over, Frost led him to the anteroom at the head, and once more he was stripped and reclothed in surgeon's overalls and a mask. Then he was brought in, into the presence of the gaping and dribbling head. To his surprise, Frost took not the slightest notice of it. He led him across the room to a narrower little door with a pointed arch in the far wall. Here he paused and said, Go in. 
You will speak to no one of what you find there. I will return presently. He then opened the door, and Mark went in. The room at first sight was an anticlimax. It appeared to be an empty committee room with a long table, eight or nine chairs, some pictures, and oddly enough, a large stepladder in one corner. Here also there were no windows. It was lit by an electric light, which produced better than Bark had ever seen it produced before, the illusion of daylight and of a cold, gray place out of doors. This, combined with the absence of a fireplace, made it seem chilly, though the temperature was not, in fact, very low. A man of trained sensibility would have seen at once that the room was ill-proportioned, not grotesquely so, but sufficiently to produce dislike. It was too high and too narrow. Mark felt the effect without analyzing the cause, and the effect grew on him as time passed. Sitting staring about him, he next noticed the door, and thought at first he was the victim of some optical illusion. It took him quite a long time to prove to him so that he was not. The point of the arch was not in the center. The whole thing was lopsided. Once again, the error was not gross. The thing was dear enough to be true, to deceive you for a moment and go on teasing the mind even after the deception had been unmasked. Involuntarily, one kept shifting the head to find positions from which it would look right after all. He turned round and sat with his back to it. One mustn't let it become an obsession. Then he noticed the spots on the ceiling. They were not mere specks of dirt or discoloration. They were deliberately painted on, little round-black spots placed at irregular intervals on the pale mustard-colored surface. There were not a great many of them, perhaps thirty, or was it a hundred? He determined he would not fall into the trap of trying to count them. They would be hard to count. They were so irregularly placed. Or weren't they? Now that his eyes were growing used to them, and one couldn't help noticing that there were five in that little group to the right, their arrangement seemed to hover on the verge of regularity. They suggested some kind of pattern. Their peculiar ugliness consisted in the very fact that they kept on suggesting it and then frustrating the expectation thus aroused. Suddenly he realized that this was another trap. He fixed his eyes on the table. There were spots on the table, too, white ones, shiny white spots not quite round, and arranged, apparently, to correspond to the spots on the ceiling. Or were they? No, of course not. And now he had it. The pattern, if you would call it a pattern, on the table was the exact reversal of that on the ceiling, but with certain exceptions. He found he was glancing rapidly from one to the other, trying to puzzle it out. For the third time, he checked himself. He got up and began to walk about. He had a look at the pictures. Some of them belonged to the school of art with which he was already familiar. There was a portrait of a young woman who held her mouth open, wide open to reveal the fact the inside of it was thickly overgrown with hair. It was very skillfully painted in the photographic manner so that you could almost feel that hair. Indeed, you could not avoid feeling it however hard you tried. There was a giant mantis playing a fiddle while being eaten by another mantis and a man with corkscrews instead of arms bathing in a flat, sadly-colored sea beside a summer sunset. But most of the pictures were not of this kind. At first, most of them seemed rather ordinary, though Mark was a little surprised at the predominance of scriptural themes. It was only at the second or third glance that one discovered certain unaccountable details, something odd about the positions of the figure's feet, or the arrangement of their fingers, or the grouping, and who was the person standing between the Christ and the Lazarus? And why were there so many beetles under the table of the Last Supper? What was the curious trick of lighting that made each picture look like something seen in delirium? 
when once these questions had been raised, the apparent ordinariness of the pictures became their supreme menace, like the ominous surface innocence at the beginning of certain dreams. Every fold of drapery, every piece of architecture had a meaning one could not grasp, but which withered the mind. Compared with these, the other surrealistic pictures were merely foolery. Long ago, Mark had read somewhere of things of that extreme evil to which innocent, which seem innocent to the uninitiate, and had wondered what sort of things they might be. Now he felt he knew. He turned his back on the pictures and sat down. He understood the whole business now. Frost was not trying to make him insane, not at least in the sense Mark had hitherto given the word insanity. Mark had meant what he said. Uh, Frost had meant what he said. To sit in the room was the first step towards what Frost called objectivity, the process whereby all specifically human reactions were killed in a man so that he might become fit for the fastidious society of the macrobes. Higher degrees in the asceticism of anti-nature would doubtless follow the eating of abominable food, the dabbling in dirt and blood, the ritual performances of calculated obscenities. They were, in a sense, playing quite fair with him, offering him the very same initiation through which they themselves had passed and which had divided them from humanity, distending and dissipating wither into a shapeless ruin while it condensed and sharpened frost into the hard, bright little needle that he was now. now. But after an hour or so, this long, high coffin of a room began to produce on Mark an effect which his instructor had probably not anticipated. There was no return of the attack which he had suffered last night in the cell, whether because he had already survived that attack or because the imminence of death had drawn the tooth of his lifelong desire for the esoteric or because he had, in a fashion, called very urgently for help. The built and painted perversity of this room had the effect of making him aware, as he had never been aware before, of this room's opposite. As the desert first teaches men to love water, or as absence first reveals affection, there rose up against this background of the sour and the crooked some kind of vision of the sweet and the straight. Something else, something he vaguely called the normal, apparently existed. He had never thought about it before, but there it was, solid, massive, with a shape of its own, almost like something you could touch or eat or fall in love with. It was all mixed up with Jane and fried eggs and soap and sunlight and rooks cawing at Keir Hardy, and the thought that somewhere outside daylight was going on at that moment. He was not thinking in moral terms at all, or else, what is more the same thing, he was having his first deeply moral experience. He was choosing a side, the normal. All that, as he called it, was what he chose. If the scientific view led away from all that, then be damned to the scientific point of view. The vehemence of his choice almost took his breath away. He had not had such a sensation before. For the moment he hardly cared if Frost and Wither killed him. I do not know how long this mood would have lasted, but while it was still at its height, Frost returned. He led Mark to a bedroom where a fire blazed and an old man lay in a bed. The light gleaming on glasses and silver and the soft luxury of the room so raised Mark's spirits that he found it difficult to listen while Frost told him that he must remain here on duty till relieved and must ring up the deputy director if the patient spoke or stirred. He himself was to say nothing. Indeed, it would be useless if he did, for the patient did not understand English. Frost retired. Mark glanced round the room. He was reckless now. He saw no possibility of leaving Belbury alive unless he allowed himself to be made into a dehumanized servant of the macrobes.
Meanwhile, do or die for it, he was going to have a meal. There were all sorts of delights on that table, perhaps a smoke first, with his feet on the tent fender. Damn, he said as he put his hand into his pocket and found it empty. At the same moment, he noticed that the man in the bed had opened his eyes and was looking at him. I'm sorry, said Mark. I didn't mean, and then stopped. The man sat up in bed and jerked his head towards the door. Ah, he said inquiringly. I beg your pardon, said Mark. Ah, said the man again. And then, foreigners, eh? You do speak English then, said Mark. Ah, said the man. After a pause of several seconds, he said, Governor. Mark looked at him. Governor, repeated the patient with great energy. You haven't got such a thing as a bit of backy about you, huh? <coughs> Section 2 I think that's all we can do for the present, said Mother Dimble. We'll do the flowers this afternoon. She was speaking to Jane, and both were in what was called the lodge, a little stone house beside the garden door, at which Jane had been first admitted to the manor. Mrs. Dimble and Jane had been preparing it for the Maggs family, for Mr. Maggs' sentence expired today, and Ivy had gone off by train on the previous afternoon to spend the night with an aunt in the town where he was imprisoned to meet him at the prison gate. When Mrs. Dimble had told her husband how she would be engaged that morning, he had said, Well, it can't take you very long just lighting a fire and making a bed. I share Dr. Dimble's sex and his limitation. I have no idea what the two women found to do in the lodge for all the hours they spent there. Even Jane had hardly anticipated it. In Mrs. Dimble's hands, the task of airing the little house and making the bed for Ivy Maggs and her jailbird husband became something between a game and a ritual. It woke in Jane vague memories of helping at Christmas or Easter decorations in church when she had been a small child. But it also suggested to her literary memory all sorts of things out of 16th century epithalamians, age-old superstitions, jokes, and sentimentalities about bridal beds and marriage bowers with omens at the threshold and fairies upon the hearth. It was an atmosphere extraordinarily alien to that in which she had grown up. A few weeks ago she would have disliked it. Was there not something absurd about that stiff, twinkling, archaic world, the mixture of prudery and sensuality? the stylized ardors of the groom and the conventional bashfulness of the bride, the religious sanctioned, the permitted solacities of Vescanine song, and the suggestion that everyone except the principals might be expected to be rather tipsy. How had the human race ever come to imprison in such a ceremony the most, most unceremonious thing in the world? But she was no longer sure of her reaction. What she was sure of was the dividing line that included Mother Dimble in that world and left her outside. Mother Dimble, for all of her 19th century propriety, or perhaps because of it, struck her this afternoon as being herself an archaic person. At every moment she seemed to join hands with some solemn yet roguish company of busy old women who had been tucking young lovers into bed since the world began with an incongruous mixture of nods and winks and blessings and tears, quite impossible old women in ruffs and wimples who would be making Shakespearean jokes about codpieces and cuckoldry at one moment and kneeling devoutly at altars the next. It was very odd, for of course, as far as their conversation was concerned, the difference between them was reversed. Jane, in a literary argument, could have talked about codpieces with a great sang Freud, while Mother Dimble was an Edwardian lady who would simply have ignored such a subject out of existence if any modernized booby had been so unfortunate as to raise it in her presence. Perhaps the weather had some bearing on Jane's curious sensations. The frost had ended. It was one of those days of almost piercingly sweet mildness, which sometimes occur at the very beginning of winter. 
Ivy had discussed her own story with Jane only the day before. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Mr. Banks had stolen some money from the laundry that he worked for. He had done this before he met Ivy, and at a time when he had got into bad company. Since he and Ivy had started going out together, he had gone as straight, as straight, but the little crime had been unearthed and come out of the past to catch him, and he'd been arrested about six weeks after their marriage. Jane had said very little during the telling of the story. Ivy did not seem conscious of the purely social stigma of att attaching to petty theft and a term of imprisonment, so that Jane would have had no opportunity of practice, even if she had wished, that almost technical kindness which some people reserve for the sorrows of the poor. On the other hand, she was given no chance to be revolutionary or speculative, to suggest that theft was no more criminal than all wealth was criminal. Ivy seemed to take traditional morality for granted. She had been ever so upset about it. It seemed to matter a great deal in one way and not to matter at all in another. It had never occurred to her that it should alter her relations with her husband, as though theft, like ill health, was one of the normal risks one took in getting married. I always say you can't expect to know everything about a boy till you're married. Not really, she said, said. I suppose not, said Jane. Of course, it's the same for them, added Ivy. My old dad used to often say he'd never married Mom, not if he had known how she snored. And she said herself, no, Dad, that you wouldn't. That's rather different, I suppose, said Jane. Well, what I say is, if it wasn't one thing, it'd be something else. That's how I look at it. And it isn't as if they hadn't got a lot to put up with, too. Because there's a sort of got to get married if they're the right sort, poor things. But whatever we say, Jane, a woman takes a lot of living with. I don't mean what you call a bad woman. I remember one day, it was before you came, Mother Dimble was saying something to the doctor, and there he was sitting, reading something, you know the way he does, with his fingers on, under some of the pages and a pencil in his hand, not the way you or I'd read, and he just said, Yes, dear, and we both knew of us he hadn't been listening, and I said, There you are, Mother Dimble, I said. That's how they treat us once they're married. They don't even listen to what we say, I said. And do you know what she said? Ivy Mang, she said. Did it ever come into your mind to ask whether anyone could listen to all we say? Those were her very words. Of course, I wasn't going to give in to it, not before him. So I said, yes, they could. But it was a fair knockout. You know often I've been, how often I've been talking to my husband for a long time, and he's looked up and asked me what I've been saying, and, you know, I have been able to remember myself. <laughs> oh, that's different, said Jane. It's when people drift apart, take up quite different opinions, join different sides. You must be ever so anxious about Mr. Studdick, replied Ivy. I'd never be able to sleep a wink if I were in your shoes, but the director will bring it all right in the end. You see if he don't. Mrs. Dimble went back to the house presently to fetch some little nicety that would put the finishing touch to the bedroom in the lodge. Jane, feeling a little tired, knelt on the window seat and put her elbows on the sill and her chin in her hands. The sun was almost hot. The thought of going back to Mark, if Mark was ever rescued from Belbury, was one which her mind had long accepted. It was not horrifying to her, but flat and insipid. It was not the less so, because at this moment she fully forgave him for his conjugal crime of sometimes apparently preferring her person to her conversation, and sometimes his own thoughts to both. Why should anyone be particularly interested in what she said? This new humility would even have been pleasant to her if it had been directed at anyone more exciting than Mark. She must, of course, be very different with him when they met again. But it was that, again, which so took the savor out of the good resolution, like going back to a sum one had already got wrong and working it out afresh on the same scrawled page of the exercise book. 
if they met again. She felt guilty at her lack of anxiety. Almost the same moment, she found that she was a little anxious, for hitherto she had always somehow assumed that Mark would come back. The possibility of his death now presented itself. She had no direct emotions about herself living afterwards. She just saw the image of Mark dead, that face dead, in the middle of a pillow, that whole body rigid, those hands and arms, for good and ill, so different from all other hands and arms, stretched straight out and useless, like a doll's. She felt very cold. Yet the sun was hotter than ever, almost impossibly hot for the time of year. It was very still, too, so still she could hear the movements of a small bird which was hopping along the path outside the window. This path led to the door of the garden wall by which she had first entered. The bird hopped onto the threshold of that door and onto someone's foot. For now Jane saw that someone was sitting on a little seat just inside the door. This person was only a few yards away, and she must have been sitting very quiet for Jane not to have noticed her. A flame-colored robe in which her hands were hidden covered this person from the feet to where it rose behind her neck in a kind of high rough-like collar, but in front it was so low or open that it exposed that it exposed her large breasts. Her skin was darkish and southern and glowing, almost the color of honey. Some such dress had seemed worn by Minoan priestesses on a vase for an old tenosis. The head, poised motionless on the muscular pillar of her neck, stared stared straight at Jane. It was a red-cheeked, wet-lipped face with black eyes, almost the eyes of a cow, and an enigmatic expression. It was not by ordinary standards at all like the face of Mother Dimble, but Jane recognized it at once. It was, to speak like the musicians, the full statement of that theme which had elusively haunted Mother Dimble's face for the last few hours. It was Mother Dimble's face with something left out, and the omission shocked Jane. It is brutal, she thought, for its energy crushed her, but then she half changed her mind and thought, it is I who am weak and trumpery. It is mocking me, she thought, but then once more changed her mind and thought, it is ignoring me, it doesn't see me. For though there was almost an ogreish glee in the face, Jane did not seem to be invited to share the joke. She tried to look aside from the face, succeeded, and saw for the first time that there were other creatures present, four or five of them, no more, a whole crowd of ridiculous little men, fat dwarves in red caps with tassels on them, chubby, gnome-like little men, quite insufferably familiar, frivolous, and irrepressible. For there was no doubt that they, at any rate, were mocking her. They were pointing at her, nodding, mimicking, standing on their heads, turning somersaults. Jane was not yet frightened, frightened part, partly because the extreme warmth of the air at this open window made her feel drowsy. It was really quite ridiculous for the time of year. Her main feeling was one of indignation. A suspicion, which had crossed her mind once or twice before now, returned to her with irresistible force. The suspicion that the real universe might be simply silly. It was closely mixed up with the theories of that grown-up laughter, loud, careless, masculine laughter on the lips of bachelor uncles, which had often infuriated her in childhood, and from which the intense seriousness of her school debating society had offered such a grateful escape. But a moment later she was very frightened indeed. The giantess arose. They were all coming at her. With a great glow and a noise like fire, the flame-robed woman and the malapert dwarfs were all come to, into the house. 
They were in the room with her. The strange woman had a torch in her hand. It burned with terrible blinding brightness, crackling, and sent up a cloud of dense black smoke and filled the bedroom with a sticky, resinous smell. If they're not careful, thought Jane, they'll set the house on fire. But she had hardly time to think of that, for her whole attention was fixed by the outrageous behavior of the little men. They began making hay of the room. In a few seconds, the bed was mere chaos, the sheets on the floor, and blankets snatched up and used by the dwarves for tossing the fattest of their company, the pillows hurtling through the air, feathers flying everywhere. Look out, look out, can't you, shouted Jane, for the giantess was beginning to touch various parts of the room with her torch. She touched a va vase on the mantelpiece. Instantly, there rose from it a streak of color which Jane took for fire. She was just moving to try to put it out when she saw that the same thing was happening to a picture on the wall, and then it happened faster and faster all around her. The very top knots on the dwarves were now on fire, but just as the terror of this became unbearable, Jane noticed that what was curling up from everything the torch had touched was not flame after all, but vegetation. Ivy and the honeysuckle was growing up the legs of the bed, red roses were sprouting from the caps of the little men, and from every direction huge lilies rose to her knees and waist, shooting out their yellow tongues at her. The smells, the heat, the crowding, the strangeness made her feel faint. It never occurred to her to think she was dreaming. People mistake dreams for visions. No one ever mistook a vision for a dream. "'Jane, Jane!' came the voice of Mrs. Dimble suddenly. "'What on earth is the matter?' Jane sat up. The room was empty, but the bed had been all pulled to pieces. She had apparently been lying on the floor. She felt cold and very tired. What has happened? repeated Mrs. Dimble. I don't know, said Jane. Are you ill, child? said Mother Dimble. I must see the director at once, said Jane. It's all right. Don't bother. I can get up by myself, really. But I'd like to see the director at once. The End <laughs>